This is the Foot in the Box podcast for the week of Monday, August 29th. And now, please rise for the singing of our Welcome to episode 65 of the A Foot in the Box podcast. My name is Peter Elliott. And I'm Paul Elliott. This is a weekly baseball podcast. We are twin brothers that live in Champaign, Illinois. Paul, uh, the Illinois football season starts next Saturday. How many wins are you predicting? Wow, I haven't spent much time thinking about Illinois football. I will say six. How about you? Not excited for the Levy era? Uh... I think, I mean, I I think we probably would have won like four games. Well, no, Beckman. you said you haven't thought about it. Just like we had Benson's party this weekend, other stuff going on that puts Illinois football in the back burner. I'm going to go, I'm going to go four and eight. Four and eight. Unfortunately. Yep. If Beckman were the coach, or I mean. Uh, That's, I don't even want to think about that. Hmm. Okay. Uh, you got anything? Uh, banter wise? Yes. Several things. First, uh, have you been following the Danny Valencia, Billy Butler incident? Yeah, that was hilarious. He tweeted out the article so, this week. So from what I read, uh, Valencia was having a conversation with a shoe representative. Mm-hmm. Uh, Butler kind of butted in, said something that made Valencia mad, and then Valencia punched Butler in the temple. Is that right? Uh, yes. Uh, Butler, while Valencia was talking with a shoe representative, Butler... Uh, chimed in that Valencia didn't wear this like the uh, shoes that he was supposed to. Like, hmm. So say Valencia is like a Mizuno. I don't know what shoe he wears, but say he's Mizuno. He wasn't wearing Mizunos when he was supposed to, and so that made Valencia look bad. So he kind of called him out in front of the shoe rep. Mm-hmm. And it seems like Butler has uh, a reputation for being uh, just an annoying teammate, yeah. even in Kansas City beforehand. Um but yeah, I think uh, Butler is on the DL now. Yeah, concussion-like symptoms. So the the um, article that we tweeted out, and we can link to it in the uh, podcast episode page, but that is one of the funniest uh, like baseball articles I've read because it has like the specifics of what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, which case would be mis- more dysfunctional, the Chris Sale cutting up jerseys or the Valencia punch? Uh, Chris Sale, yeah. for sure. Yeah, more of the story is that when teams lose a lot, their chemistry is bad. Or do they lose a lot because their chemistry is bad? Yeah, I'd say the former. Uh, also, update on Jacob Webb. Mm-hmm. If you remember last week, I talked about him. He's a relief pitcher in the Brave system. And last week, he had pitched eight innings and had struck out 22 batters in those eight innings. And so he had a chance to break the record, which was 24. He pitched a third of an inning on Tuesday this past week, struck that batter out. He did give up three runs, um, but in terms of strikeouts, he's still on pace. He only pitched once? Right, only once. Um, Yeah, it's kind of weird. but um, No other reason? like Not that I could find. Injuries or anything? There doesn't appear to be like a beat writer for the Danville Braves, but 
So he needs to strike out his next two batters. To what break. level is that? Uh, it's rookie ball. Okay. So not even single A? Correct. Notch below that. So you said he got promoted and then he got sent back down to rookie ball? Right, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. he's not a very good pitcher. His, other than, I mean, this outing wasn't great. But other than that, his numbers are decent. But, yeah, he doesn't have a lot of major league potential, I don't think. From one pitcher to another, uh, Matt Bush updates. Uh, three innings pitched, one earned run, and three strikeouts. Pretty normal week for Mr. Bush. Mm-hmm. Another uh, Rangers pitcher got in some hot water. Who's that? Uh, Jeffries, the pitcher they traded for from the Brewers, uh, urinated on himself and got a DUI. Really? Yeah. I didn't see that. Not a great influence for Mr. Bush. Uh, like, went out at night and Right, yeah, after a win. Himself. Yep. Is he suspended or anything? Not that I saw. Uh, Saturday night, Mike Everett, umpire, ejected four Tigers. Did you see that? I did see that, yeah. Uh, all the Tigers players said it was just a rough night for Mr. Everett. Uh, yeah, not a good look for umpires to uh, eject four players, or three players and a manager. If the conversation between J.D. Martinez and Everett um, is as Martinez says it went down, uh, that has to be one of the best exchanges that I've Yeah, what of. was the quote? Something along the lines of, you know, Martinez, after striking out, said, uh, you're having a rough night, Mike. And then Everett, the umpire, said, what was that? And then he repeated himself, you're having a tough night. And then he said, you're gone. Martinez said, why? Everett said, because you said it twice. Yep. Martinez says, well, you asked me. Because so. you asked me what I said. I would doubt that it went down exactly like that. but Probably a couple F-bombs in there. Yeah, who knows? Uh, our Nelly fun fact this week, I missed that, uh, thanks to him for our intro song. Our fun fact, I believe I've talked about his children before, but uh, he is a father of four children and he is a single dad, according to this article that I read. And his oldest son, uh, who goes by Trey, is a high school football player. So now that high school football has started up uh, around the country, maybe I'll what's uh, no, come on, what's Nelly's last name? stats next week. Cornell, what's his last name? Uh, Cornell Haynes Jr. So it'd be Trey Haynes? Or I think it's Haynes. It's either Hayes or Haynes. Hmm. H-A-Y-E-S or N-E-S. Uh, did you have anything else? Uh, just the last thing, and maybe you'll touch about the, touch on this later. A.J. Ellis got traded. That was a big deal. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, a fan favorite and a really a team favorite from the Dodgers got dealt to um, the Phillies. For Carlos Ruiz, um, you know, on paper it makes sense, probably. Ellis was terrible offensively. Ruiz is a little bit better, especially against lefties. But uh, from a chemistry standpoint. Um, and even from a defensive standpoint. Is Ruiz pretty bad defensively? No, Ellis is just really good. Phenomenal, yeah. My beef with that trade wasn't that they got Ruiz. is that they felt like they had to deal Ellis to the Phillies. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine the Phillies said, the only way we give up Ruiz is if you give us Ellis. And maybe it was, but it seems like uh, you could carry three catchers. The Cubs have done it all season, um, so I didn't understand why they had to include Ellis in that trade back to the Phillies. Yeah, I guess they've got a minor league catcher, um, last name Baines, who's they're going to call up in September. And the it's Phillies kind of, or the Dodgers? The Dodgers is kind of the backup of the future for Grandall. Okay. Um, Still though, if it was going to create all the chaos, yeah, it's August twenty eighth right now. When we're recording this, you've got three days to tough it out before rosters expand. Yeah. And even if Ellis isn't on the playoff roster, that's a way different conversation than 
right? The one we're having now. Uh, and it was a big deal. I mean, like Kershaw was crying after the trade. Well, they said when they found out, uh, Ellis went and found Kershaw, and they just sat in the dugout and cried together. Wow. Um, and, uh, I mean, a lot of players, like Dan Heron, uh, who's retired, tweets a lot. He's uh, a good Twitter follower, but he said it doesn't make any sense. Um, a lot of the players, uh, Kenley Jansen said, you know, we got to move on, but spoke to not really understanding why they did it. And then the first game after that, on Friday night when they are playing the Cubs, Ruiz had two wild pitches, um, technically wild pitches, but he should have stopped them. One of them was hmm. just uh, you know, not catching Jansen's cutter as well as Ellis used, used to, because Ellis probably would have been in the game. Um, so that was there's a lot of heat Friday night after the Cubs beat the Dodgers. Yeah, what's odd too is like the Dodgers were really hot. Like they, um, mm-hmm. after Kershaw had gone down, had been like really really good. Um, now the leaders in the NOS, and so it wasn't like a trade out of desperation or anything like that. Well, and Kershaw is um, getting ready to come back. Right. Uh, you got anything else? Uh, I think that's it. It's time for baseball on TV. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. So if you couldn't tell, this week's baseball on TV is Cheers, the 80s and early 90s classic is my selection, and Cheers itself, uh, which I was unaware of, is a uh, very much a baseball TV show in general. Yeah, Wade Boggs has made a couple appearances. Well, the main character is a former relief pitcher for the Red Sox. Um, So it's Ted Danson. He plays the role of Sam Maloney, or Sam Malone. I haven't watched it enough to hear his last name. Um, the show ran for 11 seasons from 1982 to 1993 on NBC. And uh, the episode that we chose this week was Season 2, Episode 8, called Manager Coach. And uh, we could do several uh, other episodes in the future. This is kind of a jackpot show for baseball-themed episodes. Um, the the uh, plot line of this uh, episode in particular is um, Diane and Coach. Uh, they both work at Sam Maloney's or Sam Malone's bar, um, which is called Cheers. It's set in Boston. Um, do, uh, does every episode happen just inside the bar? I feel like I've heard that before. Yeah, I guess this episode did. I've never seen another episode. Yeah, so you've got a lot of characters coming in and out of the, the bar inside of Cheers, but uh, you never see anything outside of the bar. Which is a great idea in terms yeah. of a budget uh, and a TV set. It's a very spacious bar. There's it's offices true. and a lot of tables. Yep, it's true. Um, so Diane and Coach, who both work in the bar, they're main characters in the episode along with um, Sam. And uh, Coach, who's this older fellow, uh, kind of not the brightest uh, brightest guy in the world, older, apparently gets tricked a lot, according to Wikipedia. A former big league uh, not a head coach or a manager, but he did coach. 
Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. So this guy from the community comes in and says, hey, we need a little league coach. He wants Sam to do it because Sam uh, pitched for the Red Sox. Sam says, I can't do it, uh, but coach this old guy. He'd be great for it. And he reluctantly does it, but then he gets really into it mm-hmm. uh, to the point where he's uh, like crazy into it. What's strange about that whole dynamic of him being re- reluctant to take on the manager gig is that his nickname is Coach. Yeah. So he, he acts like it's out of character or something, but his <laughs> his whole character is predicated on him being a former like, coach. Yeah, he should be the natural fit if he's coached uh, baseball. And his uh, nickname is Coach. Yeah, I agree. Uh, that it, it was weird, but he gets way into it. The team is great, but the kids hate playing for him. And uh, eventually he kind of realizes uh, the error of his ways and realizes that he's taken it too far. And like a lot of uh, 80s and 90s sitcoms, it, 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 like borderline, there's those episodes where it's like a really serious issue and the crowd uh, doesn't really know whether to like laugh or, I don't know, they tackle really serious issues. So, um, Grantland had a, had an article on this once. Maybe I can link to it if it's still on the internet. Uh, but Tom Hanks plays, um, this drunk uncle in one TV show, um, has a drinking problem and like the crowd's still laughing at his jokes, even though it's like a super serious topic. And I know like, um, uh, different strokes did that a few times and, um, yeah, so we'll link to it. You can go check out those serious moments. But this one didn't really get as far as that, kind of with the competitiveness, but it was close because this guy was like super into it and the crowd was like nervous laughing, I felt like at some points. Yeah, I agree. Uh, another sh- uh, moment in a show that would fit that criteria would be Boy Meets World when they find marijuana. I, I believe Brad's marijuana under the mm, por- porch yeah, That's a good one. Wait, you mean Home Improvement? Home Improvement, yeah, sorry. Uh, Family Ties was the name of the Tom Hanks, uh, one where he gets drunk. Hmm. Um, and that's a preview for, or a teaser for later in the episode when we talk about A League of Their Own. Um, the clip we're going to end with uh, today is um, Coach's speech to his Little League team after he's, or I guess as he's realizing um, the negative impact he's having on the kids and how uh, competitive he's being. So here is Coach. So that's what you had on your minds, huh? Well, listen to me. Nobody, but nobody's going to turn me into a Mr. Spires. Do you understand? And, Coach, there, there, there's going to be some changes. Well, you bet your boots there's going to be some changes. From now on, there'll be no two-a-day practices. you understand? You're lucky if you're going to get two a week. And any game we play, everybody plays, even the lousy ones, like you, Pee-wee. You got it? And if we win, we win. And if we lose, well, tough noogie. Get up! Paula, give these guys sodas till they drop. And I'm buying it. Yeah! Get, get up! Turn around and have your sodas. This is Paul. And for Out of the Box this week, I am going to uh, talk about a... Um, Hilarious story from a White Sox game earlier this week. Peter, I don't know if you read about this at all. Uh, three different individuals <laughs> ran out in the field in the ninth inning. Uh, are you familiar with this story? I saw some tweets about it, yes. Um, so the story comes from uh, DNAinfo.com. Erica Demarest is the author. 
It's a uh, Chicago online publication, but that's not important. What is important is that uh, two White Sox fans accused of rushing onto U.S. Cellular Field. Accused. Well, they're on video. This is coming. This is coming from the article. Uh, bet one another five hundred dollars uh, before uh, they ran onto the field, and their bond payment was five thousand dollars, which is ten percent of fifty thousand uh, dollars. So that is one element of the story that is um, very stupid and hilarious. Um, the <laughs> the other part uh, is that uh, a third person who had nothing to do with the the two betting one another and whose motive wasn't immediately clear at the time of publication, uh, also ran on the field after that. So you have these two guys, I think one worked at Nordstrom, the other worked at Men's Warehouse, run onto the field because they bet each other 500 bucks, and they have to pay. So that was a wash, though. They have to pay they, 10 times they, that. The bet was just, right. I bet you can't do it, and they both did it. Right. Um, then you have this Jose Beltran, the third guy, who was... Uh, he has a prior conviction of residential burglary on his record. He runs on the field too, and he makes it. This is my favorite part of the story. He makes it all the way from first base to third base into the stands. The mm-hmm. security guards were so tired from running after the first two, <laughs> and probably worn out from watching the White Sox, that they didn't move. Uh, this is from Bruce Levine. He said, One fan in particular ran all the way across the field from the first baseline into the third base stands without getting grabbed. A group of off-duty state policemen made the assist on the fan as he ran into the stands. I guess it made sense for the third guy to go on. The security guards were tired. Um, so just, I feel like, a snapshot into the stupidity and incompetence of the White Sox season. Um, and then that this story was following the White Sox renaming their stadium. Yeah. What are, Gu- your, what are your thoughts? Guaranteed rate field. Uh, I don't like it, but I don't really want to get into, like... Like U.S. Sailor was, I didn't like that initially either, and it just grew on me. The part that I don't like is them trying to sell it as like a good fit because they're from Chicago and because the red arrow pointing down, you know, is good because we're a strong pitching team. And <laughs> the guy from the White Sox that made the deal is brother-in-laws with uh, like the head of owner of Guaranteed Rate. Guaranteed Rate. Does that make you angry? I mean, if we got a good deal out of it, like if we're getting a lot of money, I don't really care. But yeah, I don't like that they're trying to sell it as like a good fit. I saw Guaranteed Rate, uh, the same logo behind uh, Home Plate at Coors Field hmm. on a highlight too this week. So apparently it's a, a pretty big company that's on the rise that I haven't heard about. Yeah. I get, the owner came out and said that uh, bad publicity is good for them. I had never heard of them before, so I guess at least... Puts it on my radar. and Yeah. There's a chance they could change their name, too. Like, if the company... Oh, really? Well, I'm just... There's no rumors of that, but I'm saying the quickest way to get a name change, if you don't like that, for the White Sox Park, is to have the company change their name. Maybe. Because guaranteed rate... That's a ton of work. It's, like, not a not a really catchy name. They do, like, home mortgages? I think so. Hmm. I think so. All right. My article this week uh, is from ESPN.com, David Schoenfield. Uh, who's a, um, a good baseball writer, a good Twitter follow as well. He wrote an article entitled, Are Corey and Kyle Seager Having the Best Brother Season Ever? Corey Seager is a rookie shortstop for the Dodgers. Kyle Seager plays third base for the Mariners. Both are having great seasons uh, so far this year. Uh, Corey is a candidate uh, for NL MVP. Mm-hmm. Definitely has the NL 
rookie of the year locked up, and Kyle um, is by some metrics having a better season than his brother Corey. Kyle's a few years older as well, but um, pretty underrated shorts or uh, third baseman for the Mariners. Um, him and um, Cano are really carrying them offensively, along with uh, Nelson Cruz. Uh, so the article looks into ten great uh, brother uh, combo seasons. And uh, a couple notes before I list uh, the ten. Uh, note that some of the best brother combos never aligned their best seasons together. So this is, uh, you know, Kyle and Corey are playing in the same season. So these all happen in the same year. And then also note that uh, Sconefield, when he made his list, he didn't consider cases where one brother was a star and the other brother wasn't. So it's not Cal Ripken uh, Jr. having an amazing season, maybe like a nine-war season, and then uh, Billy Ripken uh, just barely, you know, contributing maybe like they point, both point three war. They both have to be... Threshold. Well, there's not really a threshold. It's just kind of a subjective, both players have to have good seasons. Um, so these are the 10, and it's not simply like the 10 best war seasons of all time. There are some other factors involved. Just an interesting list. Uh, so going chronologically back to 1927, Paul and Lloyd Wainer, W-A-N-E-R, uh, they were teammates with the Pirates, only brothers in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Paul won NL MVP in 1927, and Lloyd was a rookie, also had a good season. So they combined for 9.6 war, and this is ESPN war, I believe, that Mr. Schoenfield is using. Uh, another interesting nugget is that the Pirates made the World Series. Um, so they're teammates with the Pirates on the same team that made the World Series. Pretty cool season. Next, 1934, Dizzy and Paul Dean. Uh, they both played for the Cardinals, so again, teammates. Uh, they're both pitchers, combined for 545 innings pitched that year. Dizzy won the MVP. There was no Cy Young Award back then. Uh, Dizzy won MVP, and Paul was ninth in Cy Young voting. Um, and each of the brothers won two games in the World Series. Wow. So that's pretty cool. 13.4 war, which is the highest on this list. Next, 1941, Joe and Dom DiMaggio. Uh, Dom is pretty underrated. He was a seven-time All-Star, um, and that's after not uh, playing for three years because of World War II. Um, so everyone knows about Joe DiMaggio, but his brother Dom, very good player for the Red Sox, uh, seven-time All-Star, and, uh, of course, Joe played with the Yankees. In 1941, um, Joe had a, a phenomenal season, had a slash line of 375, 440, and 643, and also had his 56-game hitting streak. What's interesting about this season is that their other brother, Vince, also put up a 3.7 war season. Wow. Um, so just Joe and Dom together, it's 12.1. You throw in Vince, uh, it'd be 15.8. Uh, the Yankees won the World Series that year as well. I never heard of Vince before. Yeah. Uh, pretty good player. Uh, next, 1962, Ken and Cleet Boyer, 10.2 war. Both are very good defensive third basemen. And uh, Cleet won the World Series with the Yankees uh, that year. Uh, next, Felipe and Matty Alou in 1968, 11.8 war. Uh, they finished second and third in the batting race in the National League behind Pete Rose. Next, 1970, just two years later, Gaylord and Jim Perry. They're the only brothers to win, uh, to both win Cy Young Awards. That year, 1970, they had 11.4 war, and they both led their leagues in wins. 
Next up, 1976, George and Ken Brett. Did you know George Brett had a brother? Did not. Yeah, so George, a lot of people know him. Uh, this was his breakout season. He had a slash line of 333, 377, and 462 with seven home runs. Uh, how many wins above replacement do you think that was worth? Man, that's not great. Uh, I'll say 3.1. 7.5. Wow. So I think I'm going to go back and dig into 1976. Their offense must have been yeah. pretty hard to come by. Or his, like, he had a lot of stolen bases or something. I don't or... know. That's a good question. Um, Ken, his brother, was a pitcher. He had a good season that year. Uh, total, they had 11.6 war. Next, 1979, Phil and Joe Necro. They have 539 combined wins in their careers, both knuckleballers. Uh, in 1979, they had 11.1 war combined, and they were second and sixth in Cy Young voting. Next up, 1997, uh, Sandy and Roberto Alomar, um, 7.3 combined war. It's not as great as you would expect. Uh, combined, both guys made uh, 18 All-Star games. Sandy made six of those, but by all measures, it was a very overrated catcher. Only a 13.7 career war uh, in six All-Star games. Probably thought of a little more highly than he should be. Um, but this was his best year. Uh, but Roberto was hurt for, I believe he missed around 50 games. And so uh, that results in a 7.3 war. Next up, 2003, Brian and Marcus Giles at 12.3 war. Marcus had a slash line of 316, 390, and 526 with 21 homers for a second baseman. It's a very good season. He had 7.8 war that year. And Brian, of course, good outfielder for the Pirates. Um, so, Brian and Marcus Giles, 2003, 12.3 war. I was thinking Marcus Giles because he ran into Mark Pryor. Um, was that him? Yeah, when Pryor got hurt, like the first of his injuries. Yeah, between first and second? Yeah. Yeah, what was the play that, that happened? Was it like a pop-up? Yeah. But I, was Pryor a runner or was he a... He would have to be a runner, right? Yeah. I'll go YouTube it later. Uh, lastly, Corey and Kyle Seeger, they are combined for 11 war right now, and they're both likely to pass 6 war, which has only happened once before uh, with the Perry brothers, Gaylord and Jim. Um, so that would be impressive, um, but just both having great seasons and both likely to improve uh, in the coming years as well. On this list, I would say uh, my top three would be Dizzy and Paul Dean, 1934, winning the World Series on the same team and also highest war of 13.4. That's tops in my book. Second, I would put the DiMaggio brothers, all three of them, on there. And then I'd have to say probably um, uh, Corey and Kyle, just because of how they're playing. And if they could somehow both make the World Series, that would put them over the top, I think. It's funny, my initial guess would have been the Boons, but I guess they didn't overlap enough or like Brett's. Yeah, I don't think Aaron ever had a, a very good season. Really? Had that clutch home run, but I don't think he ever developed. Yeah, and I guess the peaks of their careers wouldn't have lined up at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul, what was our best year of baseball? Did you have a very good year, your sophomore year? Uh, no. So I, th- you were great sophomore year with your 500 average and 200 slugging percentage. Whatever. Um. I had a bad sophomore year. I had a great junior year, especially pitching. You did not have a very good junior year, and then I think we were both pretty bad senior year. Yeah. So I'd probably go freshman. 
Yeah. I don't remember a time about my freshman year. We both pitched quite a bit and both were mainstays in the lineup. Yeah, probably freshman year. Senior year, you pitched really well. Uh, junior year. I was our number two starter junior year, so I faced a lot of bad teams. And then senior year, I became our best pitcher. But the, you threw like a couple one-hitters? One senior year, and then I was much better junior year. Okay. I was, towards the end of the year, I was calculating. I had a pretty good shot at the ERA, ERA record. Uh, but I got too much in the numbers and, um, ERA, ERA record for our high school. Yes. Got too much in the numbers and, um, collapsed towards the end and the coach found out about it and was not too pleased. So freshman year it is? Yes. Freshman year. 2005? Six. 2006. Spring of 2006. Yep. All right. Well, that does it for out of the box. Next up we have TWTW. When you can put some of those categories, you know, you got your OBPS and all that and the VORPs, when they can put in TWTW and then interface those numbers with TWTW under that category, then you might have something cooking. What, what, what TW is? Yeah, what is that? That's the will to win. All right, for TWTW this week, I'm going to take a look at um, putting the ball in play, contact rate. If you remember last offseason and uh, last year's World Series, uh, there was kind of a growing, I would say, open-mindedness to uh, kind of the high-contact approach. This came with the Royals winning the World Series. Uh, they struck out a league uh, best 973 times last year. Uh, they didn't walk much, and they didn't hit for a ton of power, but they swung early in the count and, and uh, put the ball in play. And uh, there are a couple plays in the World Series, you know, Daniel Murphy bobbling couple ground balls that seemed to kind of build this momentum. Um, and even, you know, like when the Cubs signed Ben Zobris, one of the the message points or the talking points was that it improved the Cubs' contact rate. And so there was just, I would say, a, a growing momentum towards contact being important. Mm-hmm. Um, I went back and, and pulled the quote from Ned Yost. During spring training of this year, he said, here I'm quoting from him, this is a ESPN.com article, for a long time, I kept hearing, your team's approach is terrible. Why don't you take more walks and get in better hitting counts? And I would say, we're working on it. Now I keep hearing, you guys are great. You don't walk, but you put the ball, but you put the bat on the ball. And I'm like, what do you want? Yeah, Ned's not the brightest guy in the world, but uh, he seems to be articulating kind of a change in mentality towards his team that um, even though they don't walk, they put the ball in play, and that's good. So I wanted to just look at this year, specifically the American League, for the sake of time, to see if uh, if there's kind of a copycat approach or if contact really does seem to be an indicator of um, offensive success. Um, so I looked at, like I said, the American League, and the team that has put the ball in play the most in the American League is the Angels, who just happen to be one of the worst teams in the American League. Yeah, terrible offense, though. Right. Um, the uh, team that makes the least contact, or the teams that make the least contact, are the Rays, Astros, Blue Jays, Twins, and Orioles. Um, they're all bunched relatively close together. So there are a couple bad teams in there. Obviously, the Rays and the Twins are both having really bad years. But then you also have some really good teams, the Blue Jays, the Orioles, and uh, the Astros, who are having a... Um, above average season. Um, so why why don't you look at offenses? Yeah, I get, I get that's a good point. But like the Blue Jays would have a really good offense. Yeah, Orioles yeah, would mean, have a good offense. There's correlation, between, but right. 
yes, there is an opportunity to refine the data. But, um, and so then I started looking back. Obviously, it's not really an indicator this year based on on those numbers. You have, um, you know, a couple of the best offenses having the worst contact rate. So I went back and looked before Kansas City. You know, were there any indicators that this high contact approach would be the right way to build uh, a lineup? And the last World Series winner with that kind of a reliance on contact was the 2002 Angels. So they had David Eckstein, Scott Spezio, Adam Kennedy, all um, free swingers. Spezio started on that team? Mm-hmm. Wow. And the only real like slugger they had who was um, you know, just a big swing and miss guy was Troy Gloss. Garrett Anderson on that team, right? Yeah. Uh, they struck out an MLB low 805 times. So they're kind of a... A comp to the Royals, and so that was what 15 years ago now, 14 years ago now. So I would kind of classify this approach of swinging early in counts, putting the ball in play, and making defenses uh, get you out as an outlier approach. Like I don't think that there's this momentum building uh, where teams are going to start copying the Royals. Um, and I think what the Cubs are doing would probably be the better way to go of supplementing high power. Uh, high walk guys with balance. with Zobris would be the the best way to go. We talked about the Yankees a few weeks ago though. Was they made a pretty big push to uh, swing early and count yeah in counts this year? Yeah, it's just uh, it's not a great like all or nothing approach. I guess would be a way to put it. Like the Royals have a ton of guys um, who don't walk at all. Well, swing early and counts. But you could also say like the Cubs of last year was all or nothing. Either you right. Uh, that's what I'm saying. Strike like, out or if you supplement um, that sort of a roster with one or two guys that can um, put the ball in play consistently, that's probably best. Yeah. Uh, I thought you were going to go with Gary Sanchez for TWT. Yeah, I could have done that. 11 homers in 13 games, most ever. Yeah, he's the type of guy that like the worst stat isn't great for because he's already passed Salvador Perez mm-hmm. uh, in terms of war, and he's played like a month. So, yeah. But you can't say that Sanchez is having a better year. Uh, if he stopped playing right now, his he would have a more valuable season. Than but Perez. obviously, you'd rather have Salvador Perez for five months versus Sanchez for a month. Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. One month of greatness and then nothing the rest of the year, or six months of slightly above average. I'll take the six month uh, catcher. Especially. If you can find a replacement, if you can find me a zero replacement level, I would take hmm. the one month. All right, that does it for TWTW. Next up, sounds of the game. This week on Sounds of the Game, we are going back to the well. Vince Scully. He's only got about a month left of the season, uh, and then we will not hear him any longer. Uh, Paul, do you know how old Vince Scully is? We've talked about this before. 81? 89. Oh, that's impressive. He won the Ford Frick Award, so he made the Hall of Fame in 1982. Wow. It's 34 years ago. Yeah, that's insane. 34 years ago. Almost all broadcasters get that award like as they're retiring or as, you know, after they die even. Right. He won it in 1982. Yeah, that's insane. We've uh, used Scully quite a few times on here, um, and so had to not use some of his best moments. I am going with uh, maybe an underrated one. September 17th, 1996, Hideo Nomos no-hitter at Coors Field. By my researching, I believe it's the only no-hitter ever thrown at Coors Field. Could be wrong there. 
the list I looked at could have been a bit dated, but I think it's the only no-hitter ever thrown at Coors Field. Uh, Coors Field opened in 95, so it was just one year after that. Um, kind of, there was no uh, humidifier for the balls and no mm-hmm. increased walls yet, so lots of home runs, lots of offense, so that's what makes the no-hitter so hard. Uh, Hideo Nomo, um, and part of the reason I chose this one is because last week, um, Jason uh, Cascray. Excellent interview. Yes, thank you. Um, he mentioned Nomo on there as kind of being the first major guy to come over to the States from Japan. And he caught some flack for it. Yeah, he did back then. Um, he won the Rookie of the Year in 1995, so this is one year after that, um, in 96, September of 1996. His line... <laughs> Uh, pretty standard for a no-hitter, not great, uh, but not one of the worst either. Nine innings, four walks, eight strikeouts on 110 pitches. Eight strikeouts, you said? Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt Moore this week also uh, came very close, also why I picked this one. Uh, eight and two-thirds of no-hit ball before mm-hmm. Corey Seager had a bloop single with Vince Scully on the call because it was a Dodgers game. And he threw 133 pitches, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, so the game... Started two hours late. Uh, there was a reported attendance of 50,000, over 50,000. Uh, certainly wasn't that many when the game started. Uh, Coors Field, when it opened, was just a huge thing in Denver. Um, so paid attendance was very high, but actual attendance was much lower. Uh, so we were going to pick it up in the top of the ninth inning uh, as Hideo Noma comes to the plate um, with, I think, runners on first and second. But then we'll take it away. Hideo will come up with two on, two out. Dodgers leading 9 nothing, And now he is getting the closest thing to a standing ovation for an opposing pitcher, I'm sure, here at Coors Field. Hideo grounded out, struck out, hit into a force play, and single to right. Right. the overture to a great musical. I mean, it's nice, but come on, let's raise the curtain. And that's what's happening here. The Dodgers have broken the game wide open in the top of the ninth. They've scored three. They're leading nine-nothing, so you don't think there's very much of a doubt. Although, I must agree, there is no fat lady in Colorado. Not at Coors Field. again the litany young mccracken and burks and nomo going head to head with a no hitter at coors field bottom of the ninth inning at coors field in denver and what so far has happened is what most baseball people felt could not possibly happen that would be impossible to happen 
that anyone could come into this haven for home runs, this nightmare alley, and hold the Rockies to no hits. But that's exactly what Hideo Nomo has done through eight innings. Because of the importance of the moment, our telecast on KTLA Channel 5 has been joined by ESPN so we can share the moment and the drama with baseball fans around the country. So pull up a chair, and here we go with Eric Young. Strike. Splitter in the dirt, 0-1. The only thing, there were two balls hit tonight. One was hit by Galarraga after Burks had walked in the fourth inning. Greg Gagne made a diving stop of the ball. Could not have gotten Galarraga, but he was able to get the force on Burks. That was in the fourth inning. One ball, one strike. The other, Vinny Castillo, in the fourth inning, hit a long fly ball on a 3-0 pitch. And Mondesi, running parallel to the scoreboard in right field, picked it off. Those were the two close to a hit. Fastball, hit down to DeShields. One away. And now Nomo has done something else you don't see here. He has the crowd at Coors Field rooting for him. Quentin McCracken coming up. One out in the ninth. McCracken walked, stole second, reached third in the first inning. Grounded to DeShields, hit back to the box in the sixth. Ground ball to DeShields. He is one out away. And Ellis Burks, the National League Player of the Week, is standing in Nomo's way of a no-hitter. is the other player to come close to breaking the no-hitter. In the sixth inning, he hit a comebacker, and Nomo reached up and grabbed it and threw him out. And now the picture will tell the story. Ah, shut up. this sound in Japanese? Ken Fukuhara and Masanori Murakami. さあ、ノモ。ノストノーランに向けてあとアウト1つ。バッターは3番のバックス。ファット。ワンエンドバック。倉上さん、ノモの今の心境は? One ball and one strike. On deck, Donnie Bichette, who has struck out three times. Ellis Burks hitting 348. Fastball missed, ball two. The way the ball carries here, the inability to really break off a good curveball makes what he has done up to here truly remarkable. Two and one. And now one precious strike away.
Hideo Nomo has done what they said could not be done. Not in the Mile High City, not at Coors Field in Denver. He has not only shut out the Rockies, he has pitched a no-hitter. And thank goodness they saw it in Japan. There you have it, Hideo Nomo's no-hitter. Uh, in 1996, he would finish fourth in Cy Young voting, 228 innings pitched, 234 strikeouts, 3.19 ERA. The Dodgers finished one game back of the division, and they won the wild card uh, that year, the second year in existence. Uh, they got swept by the Braves in the division series where Nomo pitched one game and uh, did not do very well. What's interesting about Nomo, so he came over, I think his age 26 season, and he had a couple of really good years. And so you, you, I would think like age 27 through 29 would be a pitcher's prime. But then he had like several mm-hmm. one-win seasons in a row. Yeah, to end his career in 2004, uh, he had a negative 2.4 war season. Yeah, that's pretty bad. 4-11 and 11 in 18 starts with the Dodgers. Uh, 105 hits in 84 innings. 19 home runs and just 54 strikeouts. So yeah, not, not very good. He did throw one more no-hitter. It was in 2001, and it was his debut with the Red Sox on April 4th, uh, 2001, against the Orioles, uh, threw 110 pitches again. Hmm. Uh, funny coincidence. Uh, yep, so Hideo Nomo called by Vince Scully and some random Japanese broadcasters. <laughs> um that's uh, actually the moment Jason Cosgrave realized he wanted to go to Japan. <laughs> My favorite part of it, that clip, was the outro jazz music. Oh, headed into going. the bottom of the ninth? Yeah. Yep. It was brought to you by Southwest Airlines, so they've stood the test of time. Lasting power. Okay, that does it for Sounds of the Game. Next up, I had the chance to interview our A Foot in the Box Summer Flicks guest this past week, Matt from Rochester. He watched A League of Their Own with us. Uh, but here is Matt from Rochester. This week's guest on the podcast is our friend Matt from Rochester, Minnesota. He uh, watched A League of Their Own, the second Foot in the Box summer flick this past week. Paul could not be here for the interview. He is uh, preparing for his son's first birthday party. So it's just me and Matt. Uh, Matt, how's it going? Pretty good. It's pretty good. A, uh, an early happy birthday to uh, Benson, I guess. Yeah, I think his his actual first birthday was a couple of days ago, so you're late. Then a belated first birthday to Benson. Well, Matt, uh, what did you make of A League of Their Own? It was uh, it was really good. Uh, my wife Mary and I both watched it together, and um, yeah, really enjoyed it. I had only seen parts of it in the past. Uh, my my neighbor and I were talking that it's one of those movies that comes up on AMC and you tune in about halfway through, you watch a little bit, and you turn it off. I probably did that four or five times uh, growing up. Yeah. So I definitely, for example, never seen the scene where they try and teach all the uh, all the, 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 the female ball players to um, have a good posture and use the right forks and um, ballroom dance. Never seen that scene. That was that was uh, priceless. But it was it was a good movie. It was one of those that um, is about baseball, but baseball is kind of the backdrop for uh, more meaningful things, um, mm-hmm. whether it's women's rights or whether it's you know just kind of the wartime era. Kind of like the Sandlot is not really, sorry Scott, about baseball, <laughs> but it's actually more about just growing up 
in the uh, in the fifties and what life was like in the context of baseball, but certainly felt plenty more than that. So no, I, we really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point that there are certain baseball movies that aren't baseball is not the, like the core theme of the movie. Whereas like feel the and, dream. And feel, so in, the, in that sense, I think even a non-baseball fan could really, really appreciate it, which is probably why it has such a high rating on uh, IMDb. Or even like uh, Moneyball, I feel is a little bit that way too. I mean, there's more baseball, but there's a lot of non-baseball fans that really like that movie. Um, so there's, I know you haven't seen it, but. Yeah, so, so I haven't seen it, so I can't quite say that. But I, but I feel like if someone was turned off by baseball or sports in general, they could still think Rosie O'Donnell and the Dynamo were hilarious in a league of their own and still enjoy the movie. Getting into the movie, uh, what did you make of the relationship between the sisters, Dottie and Kit? Are they sisters? Is that a thing? Uh, yeah, yeah, they were, they were sisters. I believe Dottie was the uh, the older sister. They don't have the same um, last name, though. Really? Yeah, I'm looking at their IMDb page right now. Dottie Henson and Kit Keller. Did one of them get married? Oh, I, I wonder. Yeah, I wonder if they were um, if the if the names that are listed were because um, the movie started with the scene at Cooper or not a, prior to Cooperstown where the girls were playing mm-hmm. by girls I mean old women were uh, playing baseball. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if they listed the names based on the initial setting. Okay. That's the only thing I could think because they, they were definitely sisters. Um, and uh, I think all of the sister dynamics that were, were involved um, were, were present. So which which um, one got married? Was it Kit? Or no, Daddy. Well, no, it, it, it was Daddy. Daddy was already married. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's why. Right. Because even when they were, even when they were um, back on the farm, she was already, Daddy was already married. That's right. That's right. Oh, it's great. We figured this out. Good, good teamwork. <laughs> yes. So what did you, what did you make but of their no, relationship? They're, they're, the relationship, Mary and I actually talked about it um, a, a, a little bit, about how it's hard to put yourself in one position because you, you really, you think that, I mean, Dottie's, Dottie's the, uh, the, the, the protagonist for sure, um, seems to have a more level head about herself, um, seems to be a better, a stronger leader and more confident. Um, but I think we've all been in a position of, uh, of Kit where uh, there's someone else who is significantly better than us at whatever it is, and we feel insignificant and kind of want the limelight ourselves. So it, it, was, it was a little bit, I, I generally felt myself um, disliking Kit and, and Mary, Mary agreed, and both of us wished it was a more stereotypical sports movie where, you know, Dottie, Dottie wins. Um, but, but overall, there's, there's definitely some human elements um, from, from life in there. Do you think uh, Daddy dropped the ball on the? Uh, on you the you asked department? me that the night we watched it. I um, I think it's possible. Or do you, possible. do you think that, was, do you think they made the movie uh, kind of like Inception style, where you there's not a right or wrong answer? Well, no, I definitely agree with that there's definitely no right or wrong answer because um, you know a full context plays the play. You know you're gonna have you're gonna have things happen. Um, and even even superhero Dottie is going to drop the ball sometimes, but but just the way that Dottie was so level-headed afterwards makes me think that it was not. And, and but then again, the rest of the movie, she said it's just a game, doesn't matter, it's just a game. She's 
she was never that heated about anything. So maybe it's just a continuation of that. Maybe it's her, you know, having already come to grips with it because she did it on purpose. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. We should try and get try and get uh, the, the writer and um, screenwriter on the uh, podcast <laughs> and, and ask ask him or her. Yeah. Uh, so it's funny on that play. It was inside the Parker walk off, and I thought that was funny that we had just discussed that on the podcast the previous week. We played yeah, all the clips, yeah. and it was the same exact thing. Yeah, um, it's, it's a popular thing nowadays, and I guess back then, too. Never never quite had that experience in my little league. Um, in fact, never even came close. But uh, <laughs> it was a dream. Now, if the women, um, I assume they were during this, this All-American Girls League uh, when it existed, I guess I could research it, but it seems to me that they would probably play in the men's, like, their parks, so they practice at Wrigley Field, but uh, they don't well, actually show Well, because if you look up that, um, that Wrigley was the one who who sponsored the whole thing. Yeah, is it Philip Wrigley? Is that his name? Uh, I, don't, I don't remember his first name, but, I mean, it was... I, I had no idea um, that not only was he, like, involved, but he, he continued the whole thing and kind of bankrolled it for... And it was, it was, was it 11 years? It was a long time mm-hmm. that, the, uh, that the league ran. And I, I just had no idea. And I, I thought it was really interesting how um, they they must have not gotten the rights from Major League Baseball because everything was, you know, Wrigley and, and Cubs and Chicago, but none of it was actually listed as that, um, presumably yeah. because they didn't get the, the licensing rights. So instead they turned it from a, from a you know, bubble gum to, uh, to a candy bar. <laughs> uh-huh. I was thinking. I was thinking about that because it would be almost impossible for uh, a female to like hit a home run with a wood bat out of a, out of the park. I mean, not impossible. Um, wow, Peter! And I, wow. I don't want to sound sexist, but just I mean, in terms of like raw power, I like I couldn't even come close to hitting a home run at Wrigley Field. And there's girls. Really, Peter didn't watch much uh, women's weightlifting at the Olympics. <laughs> um. But no, I, I, I get what you're saying. In, in regarding the movie, I uh, one of you, it was either Peter, or you or Paul, that tweeted out like the top 25 most interesting things about a league of their own. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I went through every one of those um, afterwards um, with Mary, and and we just we thought they were. Really, I mean, the fact that they had, you know, a huge number of women try out, but they all had to pass a baseball skills test. Yep. Except for. Um, Except for Dottie, who already had the role and was terrible. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, but, I mean, you could tell that they were they were like decent at uh, at baseball, except for well, like the, no the main level. the main characters, like Dottie, and then like Madonna didn't really have much baseball skill. But they they were like the gameplay was pretty realistic. Well, yeah, and and the uh, the the facts or whatever that, that page said that um, they just played a bunch of games. So, you know, real games so they could get footage for um, montages, hmm. which makes sense because it just looked like they were just playing a lot. And and by that time, if you're playing for a few months, even if you're not good, you're going to be able to do something. Yeah, you're going to look so, like you can you can play. Yeah, I, I thought that was, that was really interesting um, and pretty pretty fun. Although I, I always like those kind of facts. Every time I finish a movie, I go on Wikipedia, and Mary has learned to uh, just put up with it. And look for all the facts and things they got right and things they got wrong. So there's some. This one was a really fun movie. Uh, fun movie for that. Was that actually Cooperstown? I've never been there before. Yeah. So it, it was because they showed the field, um, Double Day Field, 
And uh, Paul and I went to Cooperstown two years ago now for our brother's trip. Also, the field the women played on at the end. Yeah. Oh. Oh, that looked just like a neighborhood field. They didn't, huh. So is there a women's um, exhibit? Women's exhibit at That's a, I was trying to remember. I need to ask Paul this, too. I don't uh, remember seeing that, and I kind of wish that I would look, would look harder for it. I'm sure it's there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't uh, see that section. I don't remember seeing that section of Hall of Fame. Okay. One more thought I had on the um, uh, that play at home plate. In today's Major League Baseball, the new rules of, of sliding into home plate, you can't uh, run over the catcher. So that play would have been illegal. And How would no... they have called that in the majors? So the contact would have occurred, or would the, would the ump have called it off before the contact even occurred and just said, she's out? Uh, no, it would have, the whole thing would have happened, um, and then they would but have... But then regardless of what had occurred, they would have called? Yeah, and a lot of times it has to happen on, like, a, a review. Um, okay. But technically, the, like, the only time you're supposed to be able to run over the catcher is if the catcher has the ball and is blocking home plate. Or, no, if the catcher, if the catcher gets the ball before um, you're close to home plate... They, then they can block the plate. But if the catcher is blocking home plate and doesn't have the ball, that's when you can run over the catcher. So I guess. Right. So, so, in, so in this situation, it would have been obviously out because she had the she ball. Just tried to tackle her. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So she had the ball. She could block home plate. <laughs> yeah, they should. Uh, they should do like a sequel. Like sixty years later, they reviewed it, and she was actually out at home plate. Well, I don't know if you saw on the list, but they tried to do a spinoff movie or a spinoff TV show. Yeah, it lasted with, one, uh, one season. With, with, yeah, with one season of like Marla and one or two others were in it. <laughs> yeah, and Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna were just, they were gold. It was, it was hilarious. Not sure I like any, all the way, any all of, the way May. <laughs> I like any of their other work, but yeah, they were good in, uh, good in this movie. Uh, the main, main actor, Tom Hanks, we haven't talked about him. Uh, in our Twitter poll, uh, Apollo 13 was the winner. Of the of the poll, the best Tom Hanks movie. What is your personal favorite? I know I asked you the night of, but have you landed on one yet? Yes, the night of. You you also conveniently broke the Twitter poll into two polls, <laughs> and can... the two movies I was between were on separate polls, so I voted for both of them. Oh no! <laughs> what what two <laughs> well, did you vote Chicago. for? Vote, vote early and vote often, right? <laughs> what did you vote for? I, I voted for Apollo thirteen and um, Toy Story. Okay. For, for for different reasons. I mean, I think Apollo 13 is just one of the you know, best movies ever made. Incredible soundtrack, true story. Tom Hanks is is gold in it. Um, but but Toy Story is is just my entire childhood. Yeah, yeah. I think and, 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 I, and I wasn't a um, I wasn't a Buzz Lightyear guy. I was I was definitely a, a Woody person. So Tom Hanks is particularly um, I'm fond of him for that reason. I think it speaks to Tom Hanks' uh, ability that. Each movie that I posted got one vote, and there was like twenty votes total. So I mean, he's the, he's probably one of the best actors of our time, if not the best actor of our time. Yeah, I would agree um, with that. And he he just came out with a new movie. Uh, what what was what is that movie? It's Sully. He's like the pilot Sully Burger that like landed the plane. Oh yeah, I uh, I, I haven't I saw the trailer for it. Um, it looks really interesting, um, but definitely a Tom Hanks. Movie. Oh yeah, but I'm sure when they decided was, to make the movie, he was like the only actor that they had on their list. 
Oh, exactly. But but this um, for League of Their Own, he was um, there was quite a character shift. Um, most Tom Hanks movies, I guess maybe Toy Story is also similar, where Woody's <laughs> kind of a tool of this first half. But but generally, Tom Hanks is the good guy, and That's then he's a good guy, and then he proves he's a good guy. Yep. He's really good at being a good guy, but it was it was fun to see him uh, hammered and um, not happy. Yeah, that the quote he has about um, uh, like, of course it's hard. It's supposed to be hard. If it was wasn't hard, everyone would do it. I think that is like right up there with like his best quotes in any movie. Um, I I feel like he didn't come up with that one. Some, somehow I feel like that was around before him, but I can't. Oh really? That. I should I should Google it. I should. So I feel like I've heard so many different people say that. Okay. And maybe they just all love to leave it around. Um, but I feel like it, it, it was around before him. Yeah. Purely intuition, probably not true. <laughs> yep. Uh, I was at a, uh, a gathering a couple nights after we watched the movie, and we played Fishbowl. So you write, okay. you, know, you write down like a name yep. or a thing to put in a bowl, and then you have to, one round you have to do charades, one round you have to... You know, you can say everything but that that word. And so I did uh, Tom Hanks themed. So you're, sp- you're supposed to put in like 10 things. And I did all uh, either like characters or things that were in Tom Hanks movies. <laughs> and everyone was so upset because uh, a lot of them were very difficult to get. So I did like Frank Abagnale, who's the oh gosh, Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio's character in the yep. um, uh, Catch Me If You Can. Yeah. Uh, and then I did like Wilson, the volleyball, and they were just really specific things that were pretty hard for people to get. I enjoyed that. That's pretty good. I'm sure uh, people really thoroughly enjoyed that. <sighs> Definitely. Did you play fishbowl this week? We we did not play fishbowl this week. Um, I don't think we've we've played any games this week. It's been a it's been a dry week from that then. Um. Well, I can't have you on the podcast and not talk about the Cubs. Uh, did you catch? Uh, the Cubs-Dodgers exciting game last night? Uh, no, I, I, I didn't. I fell asleep when the Dodgers were up 3-1. I such a late start, I figured there was no way I was going to listen to the whole game. So I, I fell asleep, and then this morning, um, as I as I typically do, I, followed, uh, I went back to my Twitter feed and uh, followed the rest of the game via Jesse Rogers, and <laughs> wow. Uh, and, and then, of course, watched the, the replay. Yeah, Chris on, Bryant. On Chris Bryant had two uh, two clutch home runs. My goodness, how was? And I think I mean in the um, the replay they said that he's only tied for the NL lead now. Who's who's he tied with? Nolan Arenado plays for the Rockies. Okay, okay. And then what's the AL? Who's the AL home run leader? That's a good question. Mark Trumbo was up there for a while. He's with the Orioles. Um, that's that would be my guess right now. But yeah, I'm. Are it, they both? Is, is the AL leader ahead of the NL lead? Because they interestingly said that he's only tied to the NL lead. Hmm. It's a, yeah, I would guess if they said that, that, that's probably true. It's weird. So in baseball, more than any other league that I follow, like professional league, the two, um, the two like leagues or divisions are pretty separate for me. So I know much more about the National League than I do about the American League. Right, and, and I think as I've started to follow baseball more closely, I've noticed the same thing. And but also, I'm not so deep into it that I still feel like everything should be for all the majors. Like the best record in the majors, the best mm-hmm. home runs in the majors. I mean, that's something that should be a 
a stat, but um, it's not brought up as often. Yep, I'm pulling up the uh, the leaderboard. Yeah, so Mark Trimbo has 38 home runs, and then Bryant Jesus. Bryant uh, actually took the NL lead with the two home runs, so he's leading the NL with 35. Wow. Uh, it's probably time to call it quits. Uh, thanks uh, for watching <laughs> A League of Their Own with us. Appreciate yeah. uh, appreciate the time. Enjoy the uh, the DVD copy of the film. We'll do. We'll watch it for uh, for decades as long as DVDs are, are still uh, still being played. Yes, I but could... I, I also want to want to state that I I expect to be a summer flex participant next summer um, <laughs> based on the David Rashke precedent. Oh yeah. Um, you can talk to you can talk to my lawyer Craig Dudley about that one. <laughs> yeah, I will do that. Uh, I will do that. I picture you watching this movie if you have a daughter someday with her. When she's around seven or eight years old. <laughs> yeah, maybe, there you go. Maybe a little older because of the raunchy nature of it. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot more uh, a lot more low statements than uh, certainly I'd remembered. But then again, it was on cable, so they probably were cut. Fast forward through the Tom Hanks prayer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all I can say. Oh, my goodness. We're, we're, on, uh, we're on the public airwaves. All right. Well, thanks, Matt. Uh, appreciate it. Appreciate you listening to the podcast. And um, until next time. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, Peter. Okay, headed to the bottom of the ninth. Uh, Paul, first you have say my name. All right, this week I'm going with the longest name in baseball history. Uh, bear with me here. The name, the nickname is Cal McClish. That's what he's known by. His given name, Calvin Coolidge Julius Caesar Tuscahoma McClish. Uh, very interesting name. He was a he was a decent pitcher. He played 15 years. Uh, came up in the middle of the 1940s. He pitched for the Indians, Phillies, Pirates, Brooklyn Dodgers, Cubs, Reds, and White Sox. Uh, he did get some MVP votes uh, in one of his best seasons, which was 1959. Um, fun fun fact: He was a uh, 1.2 WAR player that year, and finished ahead of the following players for MVP voting: Minnie Minoso who was a 5.5 war, Mickey Mantle, 6.6 war, and Camillo Pasquale, who was 8.6 war. What were this guy's numbers? Uh, well, he was 1.2 war. Um, I'm not. He had a bunch of wins, so that was probably why. It's in but, 1959? Yeah. I'm not even going to type it in because I don't know the name. It was the same year that Ernie Banks won his MVP. Um, but back to the name. Like I mentioned, it's the longest in MLB history. What was it again? Uh, Calvin Coolidge, Julius Caesar, Tuscahoma, McClish. And I thought for sure there'd be like some reason for the length of it. But um, Cal was interviewed and he said the only explanation he gave was that there were eight kids in the family and he was number seven. So his dad and his dad up until that point hadn't got to name any of them, but he did get to name him. <laughs> and so he just got it all out there. Um McClish said that his dad was a Republican, Coolidge was a Democrat, so he didn't really know the reason behind that, and he didn't even have a guess for the Julius Caesar connection. <laughs> um, so pretty funny, uh, probably my favorite name so far, and I'm surprised I haven't heard much talk about um, Cal before. Uh, are you going to name your next child that Donald Trump? Yeah, that's funny. Donald or Hillary? Okay, uh, moving on to... My Yahoo Answer of the Week. My question this week, uh, Paul thought it would be topical for us. 
um, with our future career aspirations. How does one become a general manager of a baseball team? Basically, what degree would a person shoot for in college? What courses should be learned? What skills does it take? What does a GM do during the day? And how does one get into the business? Very important fact here. What year was this written or asked? Uh, that's a good question. Let me look it up here. Why do you think it's important? Well, like old school philosophy would be much different than the new school, right? How so? Like nowadays, you have to go to Harvard or Brown or Cornell, have an advanced uh, stats degree or something like that. Whereas like 20 years ago, it was probably like, I don't know, get to know. A... I feel like it used to be you had to play. Right. Yeah. So it'd be harder. Nine years ago. Hmm. So more of the old school. Uh, so this is the answer, the best answer. At least you're taking a more realistic approach than George Casanza. If you don't get the reference, sorry. That's what the answer says. Very helpful answer. They, they continue. I would say even more important than what classes you take is taking on the assignments as a student manager for your school's baseball team. That assignment gives you a day-to-day -day look at how a baseball team works, from getting uniforms ready to working with coaches and managers to getting to know players and how they act. Then another extracurricular job would be to do an internship with a particular team or MLB, which would also give you some contacts with the types of people who would hire those positions. Thirdly, if you live near a minor league city, start working in some way, even if it's just concessions for a minor league team. Again, you are at a ballpark every day, getting exposed to people in the industry. I think if you love baseball and do a few of these things, you can become a major part of some organization. Wow. It's quite a jump there. Not bad advice, but your yeah. chances are still relatively slim. Yeah, I say if you do all those things, you might have like a 5% chance. Oh, less than that. Well, he doesn't say to become a GM. Uh, you become a major part of some organization. Yeah, maybe. If you could do college again, would you do any of those? Um, I don't know if uh, Hartlib, the coach of Illinois, if he has many student managers. I, I'd be... Obviously, I was, you know, I was a basketball manager, and if I had to do it over again, I probably would, still would have done that. In the summers, would you have done anything differently? Mm, I might have reached out to a couple of teams to see if there were any opportunities, but... The Cooperstown internship, I definitely would have tried for. Yeah. I wish I would have done, reached out to Alan Nathan sooner. Um, have you yeah. contacted him? I have not, no. Next week, I'll ask you again. Better be yes. Or you're fired. Okay. A uh, couple updates on games that we do. Memorial Day, trade deadline game. Paul, you've won. No need to update that any longer. Was there any... What was writing on that? It's $10, I think. You wanted to do beer. But $10. So what we decided on. I wanted to do beer. Yeah, six-pack of beer. It seems like it was a, it was a thing very weird, very weird. Okay, pick your team. It had gotten pretty close, but I uh, distanced myself a bit this week. Paul, your teams this past week, the Brewers at Diamondbacks went 6-6 six and six before Sunday. I had the Tigers in Diamondbacks and went 7-4, and four, which leaves an overall record of 85-60 and 60 for me and 81-64 and 64 for you, Paul. Hmm. Uh, so who is your team this week? I'm going with the New York Mets. All right, I'm going with the Dodgers. Uh, they got a week schedule, the Rockies and Padres. I assume you're just going by gut instinct? Mostly, yeah. You know what's interesting? So the Mets and the Yankees are both two and a half out of the wild card. Mm -hmm. And yet, 
like I feel so much more optimism about the Yankees as a franchise than I do the Mets. Like really? the, I feel like the Mets have. Had I feel a, like it would be reverse. A lot of people, I think, would have put higher odds in the Mets making the playoffs this year. Well, I just the franchise in general is what I'm talking about. Like I, hmm. the Yankees got a bunch of young talent and are still like, you know, they've got close. a a streak of over 500 seasons. Yeah. Um, to hold up to this year, that's something I'm rooting for to keep going. Okay, uh, last note: our final summer flicks is this Monday night. August 29th, we are watching Sandlot with Scott, who is a resident of Champaign. Um, so I think it will be our first in-person mm-hmm. summer flick. Um, so find your copy of Sandlot and watch it with us. We should be starting up around 8 p.m. Make yourself a s'more. Yes. <laughs> Go swimming beforehand. Um, so, yeah, that is exciting. Um, Paul, you have any other baseball I do not. things you'd like to say? I do not. Well, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Uh, send us emails at afootinthebox at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at afootinthebox. Uh, check us out online at afootinthebox.com. Uh, Paul, do you have a blog post for us? You've yes. been slacking recently. My uh, three up, three down will be coming out uh, later today. <laughs> Always a crowd pleaser. Uh, all right. Uh, say your thing. Just a reminder to keep a foot in the box. We'll talk to you next week.